I like to say that I worked with a bunch of really good chefs and one witch. Dorothy is my girlfriend's mother, and she does a lot of gardening. She's an organic gardener. She actually founded an old commune here on the farm where I live back in the 70s, and all the all kind of the hippies left, and then the family came back. So it's basically a large family compound. But she has a way of gardening that I'd, I'd never seen before. She incorporates wild plants into her garden and allows them to spread. She has amaranth and lamb's quarters. There's wild hops and wild grapevines all around the gardens. She doesn't see weeds as something to just yank out and destroy. She, she eats them. The first One of the first times I met her, she cooked me up a bowl of dandelion greens and chickweed. She served me a salad that was that inspired pretty much the greatest salad that I've ever had, which is whatever is growing at the time right now. Whole clusters of tender tops of plants, whole leaves of herbs. There could be, you know, five, ten, six or seven different plants in a salad. Now, when I make it, I might double that amount. And like last week, I cooked for a small wedding and I did a salad that was maybe, you know, 15, 16 different plants. And then four different types of flowers, you know, fresh herbs, all kinds of different things where it's like an adventure eating the salad. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to season four of the Flavors Unknown podcast with this episode number 79. My guest today is forager chef Alan Burgo from Minnesota. Alan is the author of the recent book, The Forager Chef's Book of Flora. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have conversations with awarded American culinary leaders. I want to understand their path to success, their sources of inspiration, and how their cultural heritage influences their creative process. You can find all the episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. In this episode, Chef Alan Burgo explains how foraging gave him an appreciation for the whole vegetable, the most exciting flavors he has found from foraging, and talks about his new book, The Forager Chef's Book of Flora. Hi, Chef. How are you today? I'm doing good. Yeah, doing good. Welcome to uh, the podcast Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you uh, with us today. Yeah, no, me too. Chef, so what does like foraging means to you? Because I'm sure that it means much more than going into the woods or the garden and picking up wild you know, plants. Foraging, I mean, it is the unknown for, for a chef. It is access to ingredients that no other chef can buy in a store. And I mean, like anyone in the culinary industry knows, it's just pure catnip. I mean, I go outside and I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. There's just so many different things, different flavors, textures, things. Almost every year, I eat 
new things that I have never thought were edible or even know existed. So today I was actually out with my foraging mentor. His name's Sam Thayer. He's an author. He's got a whole bunch of books out. I ate three new things today that I did not know were edible. I ate the shoots of a plant called bittersweet. And then I think the most interesting was the unripe seeds of wild yam vines. Wow. Yeah. yeah, It's like, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's crazy. What was the taste of those uh, unripe seeds? Well, so you got to get them at a particular stage. And when they get to the stage where they're ripe, they're going to be, they're almost going to look like a star fruit, but small. And they'll have three wings on them and they're tender and crisp and they're really good. And they'd be perfect just like in a salad or something like that. We were also eating the, the seeds of wild anise root and another cousin of it called cow parsley and sweet sicily. These are all different, different seeds that are related to things like cumin, coriander, caraway, they're all in the carrot family. You need to be careful when eating wild plants like that because they're also related to hemlock and those three plants resemble hemlock. So I'm working closely with super talented foragers to unlock the possibilities and unknown flavors of the wild world, of of the natural world. And you are saying that, you know, this is a great space, you know, for chefs and you know, to discover new things and obviously experiment with new things. But they probably need to be careful a little bit, especially if they don't really uh, are into like foraging. And then you are saying that maybe, you know, maybe like working with forager, it's probably the best way and having people guiding you, it's probably the best way, correct? That's the best way. It's taken me over 10 years to get where I am and I'm nothing compared to my mentor. So the best way to source some of the ingredients that I work with, and I work with foragers, I kind of mentor some of them around the country that will, they're, that are trying to start selling some of these more interesting to, to restaurants because they know from what I do that I've shown that there's value in them. You know, a lot of times we think about, oh, you know, what are wild plants that restaurants buy? Nettles, ramps, you know, mushrooms, things like that. But there is a whole palette of different colors, flavors, textures, things you can use for tea, things that are, you know, really water soluble, alcohol soluble, things that would be make really good bitters. There's things specifically for a bartending program that you could concentrate on, but you'll probably want to work with a forager to figure out what those are in your area, but they are there. They're ready to be harvested. And it is a, you can harness the flavor of, you know, the flavors of where, whatever your local terrain is, Working with a person like that, the most difficult part is just finding the right person. But I think it is as well a question of liability because I'm guessing that you cannot, as a restaurant, as a bar, you cannot probably go into like the wild, you know, and pick up your stuff and then you are going to offer it, you know, to your consumers. You probably need to buy it from someone who has, who is authorized, correct, and recognized as a forager. Legally, it's, there's a, it's a bit of a gray area, and I would say it's a little bit of the Wild West. Uh, the FDA is really kind of underfunded, and they're not going to have – they don't have the power to do lots of, like, oversight on stuff like that because it's not every restaurant that is going to go and source these sorts of ingredients. But legally, you would – so for mushrooms, there is some regulation there, and you can get them from – in most 
dates, I would say generally speaking, you can have someone who is licensed to sell a particular, you know, group of species. That being said, with mushrooms, the list of accepted species that some states that I know some states will supply is extremely limiting and does not do justice to really even simple, easy to identify species that are you know, really, really good tasting. For example, gomfa, it's called the pig ear. They're a relative of chanterelles. They almost look like a chanterelle that grows in a cluster that is kind of grayish and has a, a kind of pink underside. They're really beautiful. They're harvested a lot in South America, especially in the Miwakan, and they're made into tacos or eaten with tortillas and things like that. Those aren't on the list of accepted species in Minnesota. But they're here and they're absolutely delicious. So it can be a little bit limiting. And I will also say that I know plenty of restaurants that will just buy mushrooms from, say, there's a gardener, a guy that I know by the name of Constantine. Constantine's from Eastern Europe. He's a super talented gardener. He grows all kinds of fun stuff like hardoons, different heirloom vegetables. And he's from Eastern Europe. So he also is... Every single Eastern European person I know is a passionate mushroom hunter. So he also sells mushrooms and he will sell whatever species he wants. He's not licensed to do so, but he does it and the restaurants buy it and they trust him. I would assume that there are a lot of different relationships going on like that because it's so hard to enforce. And if you, if you trust the forager, I would say that it is okay. It's just, more, and the other thing is that more discussion on the topic, more use of these products will bring them, it will put more light onto them. So kind of any conversation about these things is a good conversation so that we can put more attention on them and we can say these are valuable products. No one is going to die when you have a forager that knows what they're doing. A lot of people get sick from food every year that is not wild food. You know, that, you know, obviously the vast amount of the American populace is not going out and eating wild food, but food in general can be dangerous. You know, E. coli is super dangerous. So there's risks and benefits and cost analysis to everything, but more conversation and exposure to wild ingredients, I think, is, is a good thing. Okay. However, it comes about. You, you were talking about the untapped, you know, world of certain species of mushroom. And I remember when you and I spoke before, I was really, you know, surprised by the fact that you were, I think that you picked like the example of morels, you know, mushrooms saying that there's, I don't know how many varieties, you know, of morel mushrooms. And, you know, I didn't know that there was as many as, you know, of those and that people don't really know about them. I would say that there should be about 13 different types of morels in mm -hmm. North America. You know, we have all kinds of different ones. Most chefs are going to be familiar with the most commonly available commercial species, unless they're in the Midwest or they're buying Midwestern morels. So Midwestern morels, like the ones that I have here in Minnesota and Wisconsin, but we also have other ones. The vast majority of people are going to be cooking with Markella Americana. That's what home cooks, generally speaking, get kind of in the cradle of morel territory in the Midwest are going to be eating. You also have black morels. Black morels are probably the most widely commercially sold species, and they are going to be coming up with in burn areas. But there's also species, I want to say it's Morchella septentrionalis, that comes up with young aspen stands in 
northern Minnesota. And a funny thing about morels is that they're absolutely 100% toxic raw. They're the state mushroom of Minnesota, but if you put them on a burger raw, you're going to go straight to the hospital. There is that higher level of learning with mushrooms and, and wild ingredients where you, you need to know, does this need to be thoroughly cooked? Or with the black morel species, about I would say about 15 to 20% of people that I've seen eat them have a very violent gastrointestinal reaction if they consume them in combination with alcohol, which is really fascinating. Wow. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So congratulations, because you just published your uh, like a book. And, you know, I believe that this is like a first volume of three, correct? Yeah, the first book is it's called Flora, or we had to call it the Forager Chef's Book of Flora because the name Flora was already taken. But it's a it's the first uh, three part series, Flora, Fungi and Fauna. So vegetables, mushrooms and meat, respectively. And came out through Chelsea Green Publishing just last week. And we sold the entire first printing about a week and a half before the uh, book officially went to market. So I was pretty pleased with that. Absolutely. And I have it here. And I, it's a fascinating, it's really, really nice book. So I mean, congratulations. I, I've spent, you know, a little bit of time flipping the pages and reading, you know, uh, parts of, of the book. It's really well done. And so it's really interesting because I, in the, the first page, you are dedicating this book to Dorothy. And so first I thought, oh, maybe Dorothy is, you know, your partner and it's not. So can you tell us who is Dorothy? Yeah. So I like to say that I worked with a bunch of really good chefs and one witch. So <laughs> Dorothy is my girlfriend's mother okay. and she does a lot of gardening. She's an organic gardener. She actually founded an old commune here on the farm where I live back in the 70s. And all the all kind of the hippies left and then the family came back. So it's basically a large family compound. But she has a way of gardening that I'd, I'd never seen before. She incorporates wild plants into her garden and allows them to spread. She has amaranth and lamb's quarters. There's wild hops and wild grapevines all around the gardens. She doesn't see weeds as something to just yank out and destroy. She, she eats them. The first one of the first times I met her. She cooked me up a bowl of dandelion greens and chickweed. She served me a salad that was that inspired pretty much the greatest salad that I've ever had, which is whatever is growing at the time right now. Whole clusters of tender tops of plants, whole leaves of herbs. There could be, you know, five, ten, six or seven different plants in a salad. Now, when I make it, I might double that amount. And like last week, I cooked for a small wedding and I did a salad that was maybe, you know, 15, 16 different plants and then four different types of flowers, you know, fresh herbs, all kinds of different things where it's like an adventure eating the salad. All these different plants, parts of plants that you're not going to get in a salad mix, the young tendrils of grapes, uh, the young growing vines of vetch, flowering whole pea shoots, you know, really exciting things to eat. But her garden, she has a whole bunch of gardens on the farm. And as a chef, you know, we like to think that when we're running a kitchen, that we have, you know, command over what nature is offering right now. We have everything at our fingertips. We can order a flat of raspberries or strawberries or, you know, honey berries or whatever berry is coming right now and have it delivered to us really soon in a day or two. 
that we can get anything we want. We like to think that we have everything at our fingertips. For example, all these different types of squash that'll be coming up soon in the summer. And what I learned through Dottie's garden and through being a forager was that being in the kitchen so much and being behind the line, it actually was a sort of disconnection in a way. So I talk about it in the book. I, I went outside to the garden one day to, to harvest some plants and look for some things. And I saw a plant that was kind of on the edge of the woods away from the garden. I didn't know what it was. And I, I walked up to it and I saw this creeping vine and it just looked, it looks so delicious. And you, you've probably seen the picture in the beginning of the book, this, these curling vines. And I thought, this just looks delicious. I don't know what this plant is. So I brought it inside. I, I cut some of the shoots. I brought them inside and I started doing some research to see what they were. And I'd cooked just about every sort of, you know, heirlooms, squash and gourd that I had ever been able to order. But I had no idea what a squash plant looked like in a garden. And it was a squash plant. And then I started to see, okay, in Mexico and Nepal, they cook squash vines and they cook them as a vegetable. So it was my, I, I was using my foraging instinct to look at garden vegetables, even though I didn't know that they were a garden vegetable look at garden vegetables in a new way. So that's one of the kind of one of the underlying themes in the book is a suggestion for people to, you know, root to flower cooking, to consider more of what the plant has to offer than what we're just shown in the grocery store and squash shoots. Are so I guess you had like a, a really discovered this appreciation for the whole vegetable, correct? So, and then I think it's great, this example that you are talking about, you know, squash. Can you, I would like to um, to spend a little bit of time on the squash. And if you can share with us, like, in fact, taking this example of the squash, like what are like the different step of the growing part of the plants that people can like really use, you know, for, for cooking? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So depending on if you have a winter squash or like a, a zucchini is going to make different things than say a, a Hubbard squash and pumpkins and gourds tend to make the shoots that I really prefer, but you're still going to get something similar from zucchini. The first thing that you'll be able to get is the young growing vines. You know, the squash is like, if it's creeping along the ground, the young growing tips of the vines are going to be the first thing that you can harvest. And for example, at like a farm where someone is growing large amounts of them, you can gather large amounts of shoots without really harming the future, the future harvest of whatever the gourd or squash is in question. And then as the plant continues to progress and grow, the leaves are kind of big and giant and you can do all kinds of things with them. So I like to maybe use them as dolmas after I blanch them. They're a little bit hairy. So you blanch them and it kind of makes everything nice and soft and tender. So you can roll food up with them and then steam them and do whatever you want with them. Then, of course, most people are going to know squash flowers. You know, squash flowers are absolutely delicious. The squash flowers before they open are, they almost look like an asparagus spear. So that's kind of an, another fun one. Then when we get into pumpkins, and I talk about this specifically in the book. Unripe pumpkins are really, really fun to cook with. And you can cook them. The flavor is mild, say like unripe butternut squash. Unripe butternut squash doesn't have the sugars haven't concentrated yet or the sugars haven't formed. So the texture and the flavor is more of like a zucchini. 
So I do one in the book where it's kind of like sweet and sour or and sour uh, with a little bit of vinegar, sugar, onions, golden raisins, tarragon, you know, mint, things like that. Maybe a little bit of hot chili. It's really, really good. The unripe seeds of pumpkin are excellent and they're crisp and juicy and you're eating them here before the shell has even formed. And you can harvest those if you harvest a green pumpkin. So the pumpkin that's it's literally green, it hasn't turned orange yet. You can scoop them right out. And I know Sean Brock in one of his books does a similar thing with uh, unripe zucchini or maybe it's ripe zucchini. I, I can't exactly remember, but he takes the zucchini seeds out and cooks them. And I think he puts them into risotto. So it's kind of a similar concept there, but there's just, there's a ton of stuff that you can do. Sure. With, with what do you squash. do with the shoots? And I've, um, you know, the first step, like, well, how do you uh, cook them? So the shoots, they're, they're pretty delicate. So mm -hmm. you can give them, even giving them a blanch, they, they might cook down kind of fast. So I just like to put them in a nice hot pan. I might add like a splash of wine, cover the pan, let them steam really quick and just cook them as little as possible. Okay. That's kind of is what my advice Very would cool. be. So can you tell us a little bit about the structure that you have chosen for the book? Because it's really not like, you know, a typical, I would say, book, you know, when covering like different botanicals and so on, that usually you have like, you know, by alphabetical order, you know, of plants, you have chosen deliberately a different order, a different structure. Can you explain to us why and, and what that structure is? Typically with books in the wild food space, you're going to see something like, okay, here's some leafy green plants and maybe we'll talk about lamb's quarter and there will be 300 words on lamb's quarter and like an introduction. And then maybe there's a couple of recipes for lamb's quarters. And then you'll have amaranth, for example, afterwards, and then maybe dandelions. And you'll have the same structure for each of those leafy greens. And that didn't make any sense. It, it gives the book a sort of like a field guide feel to it. And that's not what my book is. My book is more of like a culinary companion to a field guide. And I also cook lamb's quarters, amaranth and dandelions to some extent interchangeably. So supplying specific recipes for each of those greens, it seemed silly because I don't really cook like that. That being said, I think one of the best ways for people to really appreciate wild plants and wild greens especially is to see some of the cultural specialties that have come about using these specific plants. So I do include specific examples of where, you know, individual species of wild greens would be called for in a recipe like Protolagas. Yeah, purslane, purslane is very different from lamb's quarters and it has a kind of a tart flavor. It's an edible succulent. I, I just love it. And Latin America is just a wealth of culinary knowledge for how to work with purslane. So that we have it you know, in France as well, south of France. We are using yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, north Africa, we're using it as well, you know, so like Morocco, for instance, yeah. they're using it. So. That's Absolutely. Yeah. So a good, a good way to, to learn or to start out cooking with some of these plants is to do what people have been doing for a long time. You know, try the, the Moroccan recipe that typically includes mallow and purslane. It's one of my favorites. It's, you know, it's got the Moroccan touch to it. There's, you know, a little bit of preserved lemon. There's some olives and like, it's like salty, sour, aromatic flavors. And then you have two greens. Mallow and purslane, both of which, you know, mallow 
is like a slimy green. Correct. It's, yeah, you, yeah. Know, it, it, you know, and then purslane is kind of sour and tart. So it's a really, it's a really fascinating uh, combination. Of and it works well together. Would, yeah. That I wouldn't think of putting together, but they do. So it's worth trying. So I include those, some examples like that where, where I think it's necessary. Okay. So you have, I guessing that um, you have done like research, you know, on different cultures, you know, and how they were using, you know, those white plants, correct? That's one, that's part of the way how you research, you know, or you are doing your research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been translating a book in Italian. It's called Piante Spontanee. I've been translating that for about a good year now, just like one recipe at a time. And also I looked at a number of different kind of academic. So one of them that was a study found funded by the EU on the density of wild plant consumption in the Mediterranean and is just fascinating because they will show in that study, they show different greens by their, you know, Latin binomial name and then where they are consumed most heavily. And it's, a, it's just a fascinating peak and an academic, you know, peak an academic peek into what are the wild plants that are getting eaten right now or have been historically eaten in Europe. And then, oh, those plants are growing right here in North America too. So what can I find to do with them? And uh, you talk a little bit about that, you know, in the introduction of your book, talking about, you know, Japan, talking about Greece, talking about Italy. I think it was really as well fascinating as well about like the the vocabulary and the words that in fact, that are used in those different uh, languages to describe, in fact, a whole category, a whole family of those wild, you know, the wild plants or um, that's, in fact, that doesn't exist in English. So I think that I think it was interesting. Yeah, no, it's because we in English it's weeds, correct? <laughs> so that's yeah, why no, you're in, in English, it's we just call them weeds. But around the world, and you know, these are these are terms that came about independently in all of these different places. So for readers that, you know, don't have the book in front of them, for example, in Japan, you have something called sansai and sansai kind of literally translates to mountain vegetables. And it's going to include, it's a term, it's a blanket term for a whole bunch of different wild plants that they will harvest. And one of the most interesting ones are hostas. So they will harvest, they'll harvest wild hosta shoots and cook them as a vegetable. Then they're also, there's, also bracken fern, which they call warabi, and uh, the shoots of the Japanese angelica tree, and a number of different ferns and greens, some things that might be really strongly bitter uh, and strong tasting, especially for American palates. But they have a term that applies to many different wild plants instead of just one, kind of like a big term of endearment. And then in Latin America, you have quelites, and quelites, same thing, apply is a term that applies to a whole bunch of different plants like lambs quarters amular deep weed purslane and then you have a similar thing in greece which they call it horta and horta is again a whole bunch of different plants that they harvest wild and horta i usually see including more aster family plants so in the daisy family which would be like dandelions certain types of thistles and things like that wild chicory but i just i think it is just endlessly fascinating that we have the sort of repeatedly repeated culinary traditions and descriptions coming up around the world in places that are totally independent from each other. 
you know, earlier you were talking about, you know, blossoms and that you are using, you know, blossoms and, you know, in in some of your recipes. And I was looking at the book and there's one blossom that surprised me and I, because I have it in my garden here. And in fact, I would never have thought like using it, you know, for cooking. It's like the day lily. So uh, I know it's in the book. There's a picture of it that you don't have. I don't think a recipe, you know, with it. But I'm just, I just wanted to ask you what, what do you do with daylilies? Yeah. So daylilies are a great example of a really delicious edible flower that most people don't have to go into the woods and pick. So I see them. I see wild colonies here and there and they can get really large. Basically, Daylilies have a number of different possibilities. So from in with daylilies, again, I like to look to cultures that use them traditionally to give me a place of where to start. And in China, they're going to take the unopened flowers of daylilies when they're when they've started to get orange, but they're still maybe a little bit green and they haven't fully opened and they dehydrate them and then they rehydrate them and they're going to eat them with a soup. Or they might have them with a rice bowl or something like that. But you can actually take the unopened buds when they're small and put them in a solution of brine. Usually I use three to five percent salt to every hundred grams, every hundred grams of water. And then I mix that up and I submerge the unopened flower buds in it and they will lactoferment naturally. And then they make capers because what are capers? All capers are, are the unopened flowers of a Mediterranean vine. And if you want to make your own, the best caper that tastes exactly like the capers in a jar, the smell is much stronger, but the taste is basically the same. Our unopened nasturtium seed pods make excellent capers. Okay, very good. But now I'm going to look at my daily needs in a different way, <laughs> you know, after yeah, looking and, at the book. You can you can take the, you can take the flowers and put them into a salad. You can dehydrate them and then, you know, put them into a soup. With the shoots, the shoots are really, really good, but the shoots must be cooked or they will make you very, very nauseous. Ah, okay. Thank so you. Flower, flowers and unopened flowers are totally good. Okay. So what are the most uh, exciting flavors that you have found from foraging? Oh, man, I mean, it's a hard question to answer. One of the first ones that comes to mind is Angelica. So I had been, it took me about six years to really confidently identify Angelica. I knew that it was used in, you know, the classic French cuisine. I would see reference to it, especially candied yeah, uh, as indeed, a cake yeah. garnish. It's, yeah, um, and sometimes you'll still see it sold commercially, you know, in its candied stem form. So I knew it was used in Europe and I knew that there was some possibly in my region, but I also knew that it casually resembled hemlock. So I, I I wanted to be really, really careful. But the flavor of Angelica, at least there's probably about at least 10 different species in the United States, I would I would say. And they all kind of have they can all have different flavors. The flavor is almost like I, I cut the stem and it smells just like gin because Angelica is one of the ingredients in gin. To eat the stem, though, I mean, it's something that you can't. I don't know any wholesale purveyor or any broadline purveyor where you can call them and say, hey, my pastry chef wants candied Angelica. But you can, it's a relatively easy plant to grow. If you find it in the wild, you can harvest very large amounts of it. I used to harvest Angelica for my pastry chefs. And, you know, I could go pick 50 pounds at, at a time and it's easy to harvest. All I do is cut the stem, 
throw it in a bag, put it in the car. My pastry chef did not like to work with it. And I kept on saying, you don't understand. This plant is awesome. This is an incredible herb. And I had a whole bunch of angelica stems and their leaves, and they were sitting in the sink down in my pastry pastry kitchen in the basement under my cafe. And she was just moaning and groaning about the angelica, like, oh, I don't want to work with this stuff. It smells, tastes like perfume. And then the handsome French chocolate rep came in. And <laughs> the chocolate rep comes in with the French accent and takes one look at the sink full of angelica and looks at me and he said, how much cash right now? Wow. And she enjoyed cooking with it. After that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that a good works. story. That's a good yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, one of the other, one of the other great herbs that I talk about in the book, and this is so, it, this is relatively easy for people across North America to find is I call it wild vanilla. So, the price of vanilla has always been really expensive and it's fluctuated really, you know, violently in, in the past. There is a plant called Gallium triflorum. And if you know what sweet woodruff looks like, uh, sweet woodruff can be planted in some places in the United States. It will not, it'll get winter kill where I am in Minnesota and Wisconsin, but the plant has a really, really strong flavor, and it can also be easily dehydrated. So I have a plant around here that's also widespread across North America. It's called Gallium triflorum, and you can dehydrate this plant. It looks, basically looks like sweet woodruff. You can dehydrate the plant, and or you can use it fresh, and you can put it in a jar. You can put some vodka on top of it and let it sit for a little while, you know, a month or so, strain it out, and you will have a wild vanilla extract that can be used almost one to one with vanilla with like you would use vanilla extract, but it's way cooler because it's a wild plant. It's basically a substitute as well for tonka bean. So any dish where you would be using tonka bean, you could use a splash of the extract, or if you have some cream, you could just throw the plant in its fresh state in some cream. And it is a doppelganger for vanilla. It's one of my favorite, favorite herbs. I think that's where I've seen in your in your book something that really captured my attention because it brought me back to my uh, childhood in France. And I was surprised to see several pages on acorn, acorns. And I remember my parents when, uh, you know, I, was, I lived in a... In the large suburb of Paris, there's a lot of forests there and so on and going in the woods. And, and, you know, when you're a kid, you play with the, the, uh, you know, you find acorns and it's fun and, and so on. And, and I remember telling me that, uh, hey, you know, that's not something that you should, you should eat because they are poisonous for, you know, to humans and I think maybe to horses and so on. So I was like, okay, I need to ask you, you know, the story here, because since, you know, I am an adult, I know as well that countries like in Asia, for instance, are using acorns as well. So what's the deal? Because there's a different, there's a way of preparing the acorns that it's not, let's say, bad for, for humans or, or is it like a story that they told me that that was not true? <laughs> no, I mean, acorns are a traditional food around the world. Korea, actually, I would, I would say Korea has the largest commercial acorn crop and they're doing 
kind of what I would say is the, the easiest thing to get out of the acorn. So acorns, the only thing that's dangerous about them, and it's not really dangerous, is that they're very bitter. You know, our bodies are are designed to reject things that are intensely bitter, like they're really bitter, especially if you get a red oak species. Species of red oak are going to be more tannic and tannic than uh, species of white oak. But they, they take the acorns and they shell them and crash them up, uh, mush them up with a machine, and then they're going to pass water through them. And the water removes the water-soluble starch. And that starch doesn't contain any of the tannins, so then they just dry that, and you have acorn starch. So they sell that commercially, and it doesn't take any time to leach it. In North America is where you're going to see, at least from my experience, more of the techniques where acorns are leached. So you hear stories about you know, Native Americans taking a sack or like a, a leather bag and putting acorns that are like crushed up in it into a river and letting them sit in the river. And then they'll take them out after a couple of weeks. And then okay. the tannin, the tannin, the tannin is so water more, soluble. But the tannin like, okay, and the bitterness of it. Okay. So, so, so what I do is I, I smash them up in a Vitamix. I puree them with a bunch of water and then you just let it sit. And then you let it sit in like three times the volume of water. The acorns settle. And then every day I pour that water off and then I taste it. And after a week or maybe two weeks, depending on the type of acorn I have, it's ready to go. And it's basically like think of chestnut flour mm -hmm. if, it, if it wasn't sweet is a, is a good way to describe it. Okay. So where do you use it? Like in like cakes and, you know, something like this or pancakes? Yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite things. I mean, pancakes are okay, sure. One of my favorite things is the acorn cake in the book. So it's, it's literally like four ingredients. It's maple syrup, acorn flour, eggs, and a little bit of baking soda. And that's it. And it is delicious, but it gives you... It's a bit like, you know, maybe easy eating a cake out of hazelnut meal or something mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that. Okay. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I think the most fascinating thing about acorns is what my friend Sam Thayer is doing. So he was, he was just my, my mentor I was seeing today. Sam actually has a commercial industry where I think last year he bought half a ton of water oak acorns, which are a species of uh, red oak from the south. They're very small and he, puts them through an olive oil press and he presses oil from acorns. So I talk about it in the book and the, the tannins are not fat soluble. So you can press a commercial oil from acorns and it's really good. Okay. It's also a tradition. It's a traditional food that was uh, harvested and done by the native Americans of, you know, at least a few thousand years old. <laughs> What's the best way to collect and preserve, you know, the flavors of like, you know, wild greens? Yeah. So the, one of the best things about harvesting wild greens or just getting greens that are impeccably fresh straight from a producer is that they're going to have more of their life in them. With wild greens, let's say, you know, I'm going out to harvest some nettles and lamb's quarters and violet greens. After I pick them, picking greens from a plant, it stresses the plant. So by the time I get back home, the greens, depending on the temperature too, they might be kind of wilted. So what I do is the first thing I do when I get back home is I take the greens and I immerse them in cold water. Typically, it's just going to be in a, in a deep sink. 
And then I let them sit there for like, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes and greens that were completely wilted. And it's just, it's just incredible. You'll look at them and they'll be like standing up outside of the bowl after they sit in some cold water and it brings them back to life. So then, and it also chills them. And as anyone in the restaurant industry knows, chilling down your food before you refrigerate it is also going to extend your shelf life. So I spin the greens dry and dry them off. I put them in a, in a Ziploc bag or in a camber or something because you, you don't want to put them in a paper bag because they're going to, they're going to dry out and they're going to get desiccated. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I put them in something that's plastic because it acts like a terrarium. It holds in moisture. I'll put a towel in there or something. And those greens can last for two weeks. Some greens might last for three weeks. Oh, wow. I have one type of plant that is a, a wild mustard sprout. It's called Flirkia prosopenequates or a false mermaid weed. And that has dependably lasted for an entire month in commercial restaurant. Right. Wow. A month. How would you say that foraging transform your culinary style and change your way of cooking? Oh, I mean, I would think, I would say that studying wild plants and mushrooms, it transformed my style. I, I thought I cooked hyper seasonal before, but I, I had no idea. You know, what I, what I harvest, it may change by the day. It, it's really just made me in touch with where I live and given me a deeper, a really deeper appreciation for what seasonal food is, what food is in general. You know, I made a salad, like I talked about last week. One of my favorite things that went into the salad were the young growing tips of grapevines. You know, I had no idea that those were mm-hmm. edible you know, 15 years ago when I was getting into the kitchen. I get, you know, for the white greens and so on that, you know, spring is probably the perfect season for this. But, you know, what do you do during like falls and winter, summer? You know, do you have like favorites, like a specific foraging ingredients, you know, for like the different seasons? Yeah. So the spring is really good for fresh greens. But what a lot of people don't know is, you know, if you interact with your environment, you can have, we eat fresh wild greens until basically the snow falls. So the way that we do it is using a lawnmower or cutting the greens back because a a lawnmower is a really good way of simulating the grazing of ruminants because it cuts the greens really close to the ground, right? So what happens when you cut a plant down? All plants want to do is survive long enough so they can reproduce. So that's all they want to do. So when you cut them down, it just forces more young, fresh growth. So I cut the green, we cut the greens back and they just keep, they just keep giving all year long. Where if I go into the woods and I look for the same plants, they may have grown up and gone to seed in, in a manner of weeks. I'm harvesting different things throughout the year. Like right now, I was just scouting for, for the butternut harvest. They're also called the white walnut. So I need to see, I need to see them when they are on the tree because I can't let the nuts fall because the squirrels will take them like overnight. So I actually have to climb into the tree to shake the nuts, to shake the nuts down when they're ready, like a professional squirrel. But I need to scout using binoculars to make sure that the the nuts are there because the trees also function on a masting cycle. So mostly I see butternuts being biennial. I see most of my black walnuts also as biennial. Some of them seem to be annual where 
they might skip a year or they might okay. give nuts every year. Huh, interesting. So I process a lot of nuts in the winter, but the winter is when I use all my all my preserves. That's when I'm cooking with dried, you know, lots of fermented products. And I'm probably cooking a lot of wild game meat. I think I butchered about 12 deer last year. And I guess in the fall, obviously mushrooms are, you know, what you're focusing on, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, we're just getting into mushroom season. So June is a really bad month here in Minnesota. But now once July's kicked in, I saw my first chanterelle yesterday. Okay. So, oh, really? Already? Yeah. We'll, oh. Yeah. We'll, we'll start getting chanterelles and then lobster mushrooms, black trumpets. We have at least three, three different types of black trumpets. We have red chanterelles, two different types of red chanterelles, about four or five different species of golden chanterelles. So, okay. you know, tons of mushrooms. And so obviously you're talking a lot about like the area where you live and so on, but have you explored as well other uh, region of, you know, and states of, of the U.S.? In terms well, of, I mean, because I'm guessing really, like varieties are going to be very different, you know. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. The Southwest or, you know, and. I'd say, you know, the best thing, one of the best things about learning to look at a landscape as not just like a landscape, but as, you know, an edible amusement park is that that's something I bring with me every single, every single place that I go. You know, it's once you turn it on, you, you can't turn it off. So when I go to Arizona, I go to Arizona every winter. And when I'm there with my dad, one of the things that I look for are, I, I have some Native American friends around in the area, so they've showed me a few things. So I always look for barrel cactus buds. And they kind of look like mini pineapples or like Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. And they're really sour and traditionally they'd be dehydrated, but they're, so they're like a sour fruit, but then they're also a grain because they are filled with all these seeds you can grind into a meal and the meal almost tastes like roasted coffee a little bit. So, and there's, there's similar, there's greens down there. If I get to a place that holds water, uh, but every single place that I go to, I'm looking for what I can eat. And, and most of my friends that are in the same sort of world that I am, they're all, they're all the same way. So it, the, the world's just a giant edible amusement park. Very cool. Very cool. Doesn't matter where I am. So I would like to pick up your brain every time I have, you know, a, a chef on the show. I ask them for a suggestion how home cooks and, you know, foodie like myself can, can create a dish, you know, based on whatever their, their focus is, is. So maybe we can pit. I mean, it's like, you know, like the end of the spring, summer at the moment. So maybe like, do you have a suggestion for a cool, I would say salad based on, you know, forage ingredients that, you know, someone can do at home? Yeah. Well, we're eating a lot of salads made with lamb's quarters leaves, lamb's quarters, pea shoots, really young burgundy, amaranth greens, uh, purslane. And depending on where you are, your plants might be a little bit older. If you have a gar, if you have a garden, you probably have a number of those plants already. But I would say some of the purslane recipes in the book are really going to be great. It's, it's summer. It's purslane season right now. It's a great one to start off with because a lot of people have it in their, one of my favorites is probably just the, the one that's Carmelita's purslane with tomato and jalapeno. Uh, que, que lipes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, or, you know, Vertolagas. So a little bit, a little bit of garlic or a little bit of onion, put the purslane in, a little bit of tomato, a little bit of jalapeno, cook it, 
it's a really, really simple side dish. Or there's a salad with uh, tomatoes and sweet corn and purslane kind of inspired by the gardens around here. That's really good. But that's a great place to start is, you know, some of the some of the plants that might just be in your garden. Okay. So I would like to uh, to finish our conversation here with a series of rapid fire questions, if it's okay with you. Yeah, sure. So what would you have been and become if you know, didn't become a chef? Prison. Sorry? Prison. What do you mean? I, I'd probably be incarcerated. <laughs> why? That's why I said that. Why? Next question. <laughs> okay. No, no development <laughs> on the topic. That was, I was not expecting that answer. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ice cream. Okay. So now you have to tell me which flavor. Probably chocolate and peanut butter. What are like three cookbooks that inspired you the most? Jacques Chibois, Flavors of Provence, Michel Brass, Patience Gray, Honey from a Weed. Okay. Oh, it's an, it, is, it, it is an awesome book. Out of the three books there, Patience Gray, Honey from a Weed is one that I would recommend to, if you're a home cook, if you're a chef, you need that book. Okay. Thank you. I, didn't, I yeah, don't know that book. I'm going to look into do it. Do yourself a favor. It is, that is an incredible book. Do you live nearby Minneapolis Simple or? Yeah, I'm about 45 minutes away. Okay, so so if you and I are going on the tasting tour in Minneapolis and St. Paul, what are like the five spots that you will take me to? Five spots. Well, I'd probably probably take you around to my guy Chris Nye at Spoon and Stable. Oh yeah, sure. And then there's Been a brand there. new yeah, there's a brand new restaurant that my friend Sean Sherman is opening up. It's a Lakota restaurant. It's called Owamni. Okay. And then there's another place by a, a chef from Argentina. It's called Martina. And that is really, really good. And then a grubby hole in the wall with Mexican cuisine called Loso Campo. Loso Campo. Very good. Okay. And the last one. So what preserved forage ingredients do you like to have uh, on hand at home? Lacto-fermented pickles, capers, dried mushrooms. Okay. Are, what the, kind big, are the biggest ones. What, what, uh, what kind of dried mushrooms do you do? I, I dry, I dry all, like basically I dry all of them. Uh, really? Some of them, some of them I'll harvest like the big polypores, like chicken of the woods. I've been harvesting the big meaty portions and then I grind them into flour and I make bread with it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Because you know, you can harvest, if you wanted to buy dried mushrooms and grind them into flour, it'd be crazy expensive. Right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But because I go out and I find, I could find 50 pounds, you know, like that. It's, it's nothing for me to dehydrate it and then have, you know, I can make whatever I want. Okay. Uh, miso. Miso is another good thing. Okay. Very good. Chef, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You know, yeah, uh, our you. conversation and, uh, you know, the, the fact that uh, you, you agreed to be on the, on the podcast. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this new episode with Forager Chef Alan Burgo. You can find the show notes of this episode and all the other episodes at flavorsunknown.com. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and on Instagram or Facebook. Please share this episode with a friend or a colleague. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.